great. We are so excited for Bridget to have joined us. She's uh, been on staff now for two weeks, and as you can see, she's very excited about the children's ministry and is kicking off the, uh, with an event this Friday and uh, with shortly after that, the EP Kids Crew videos that we were doing last spring and we'll be starting up again very soon. Uh, I'm Nathan Boyette, the pastor of Outreach and Mission here at Annapolis EP Church, and thank you so much for coming out to our worship service today. I'm excited that you're here, and for those of you joining us online, so happy that you're joining us as well. We are in the second of three sermons in our Biblical Perspectives series. We're looking at three big issues that our society is facing right now, the pandemic, race, and politics. Last week, Pastor Harrison shared with us about the pandemic. Today I'm going to talk about race, and then next week we're going to look at the uh, politics before, in October, diving into the book of Acts. These are important issues that our society is confronting right now, and there's so many different accounts from all over the place telling us how we should respond to these different issues. But what we want to do as a church is look at what the Bible says and respond in a biblical way as God would have us respond to these issues. So today we're going to be looking at a whole lot of Bible passages, and most of them are going to be up here on the screen behind me. Uh, But before we dive into the sermon, uh, we're going to read just a couple verses from Genesis 1, and then I'm going to pray. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, Genesis 1, verse 26, or you can look on the screen behind me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let, him ha- let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is like a map that can guide us in difficult, confusing times. We thank you that we are not left alone in the darkness, but that you want to guide us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, we pray that as we reflect today on race and the issues that surround it, that you would help us to come out more ready to be your representatives here in Annapolis, your hands and feet, your church, as we confront this issue. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you might know my wife, Hansoon, is from Korea, and the two of us met when we were missionaries in China. We were with the same missionary organization, crew, doing ministry with college students, and we met through events we would do together, prayer times, and I got interested in her, and we started dating. And after a number of dates, she turned to me and she said, Nathan, why do you want to date somebody from another culture, another country? See, we'd been talking, and you know, both of us, we don't view dating casually as something that you just do no matter what, but we view it as with the end goal of getting married, potentially, if it works out. And so she said, Nathan, why do you want to date somebody from another culture, another country? Why do you potentially want to get married? I have friends who have dated uh, somebody from another culture, and it was difficult. It was hard, and they got married, and it's even harder. Why do you want to do this? And me, being the very romantic guy that I am, I drew a Venn diagram. (laughs) That's what I drew. Young men, if any of you need dating advice, you can come seek me afterwards. (laughs) So I drew this Venn diagram, and I explained to her, well, you see, there's three circles here. Biblical culture, and then there's a circle representing Korean culture, and a circle representing American culture. And there's various places that they overlap. There's places where Korean culture overlaps with biblical culture, and American culture doesn't overlap there. 
There's places where American culture overlaps with biblical culture and Korean culture doesn't overlap there. And so as an American, somebody who lived there my whole life before I came to China, there's so much I can learn from you, Hansun, and your culture. A lens through which you look at the world and at God's word that can benefit me, that I would grow so much from. And she said, wow, let's get married. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. She said, that's, that's a good answer. <laughs> and we did get married, as you know. Uh, it wasn't until a year later that she found out that I didn't create that Venn diagram on my own. Somebody, my trainer, showed it to me, and she still jokes to this day how I tricked her. But, and it's been the case that this has been very helpful. We've learned so much from each other. We've learned so much from one another's culture. I'm so thankful that I got married to her, and I've learned so much about community. Koreans value community so much. They are a culture of hospitality. They are a culture that, as Christians, fervently seeks God's face in prayer. And I've benefited so much from that. And that's how we should approach culture, ethnicity, and race. But sadly, that is not how we approach it. See, God created humanity in the beautiful image of God. But sin has so twisted and broken us that the image of God in others is despised. Because humans have a sin problem, our attitudes and actions in all areas of human life have been impacted. Our views about race and ethnicity is just one of those areas, and our actions that result from that as well. So today we're going to be unpacking more about a biblical perspective on race. We're going to see and look at this big idea that every human is created in the image of God, and so we should seek racial reconciliation and unity in Christ. Every human is created in the image of God, and so we should seek racial reconciliation and unity in Christ. And we're going to look at that through three big points, three main points. Created in the image, sinfully divided despite the image, and reunited in the image of Christ. So let's dive in. Created in the image. The Bible is abundantly, wonderfully clear that every human is created in God's image. In Genesis 1, which we just looked at, and let's look at it again. In Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if we jump down to verse 27 after he gives dominion to humankind, he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And then we read how he told them to be fruitful, multiply, and gave them the mission of spreading out over the whole earth. And he said that it was very good. We read here that God created humanity and only humanity. No other creature is this set of only humanity. He created them in the image of God. But what exactly is the image of God? We could spend a whole sermon on this, but we're not going to. The image of God, let me summarize, is multifaceted. There's many components to it. Being created in the image of God refers to humanity's mental and spiritual faculties which we share in common with our creator. Other creatures don't have this. It refers to our capacity to have relationships with God and with other humans. Other creatures, creatures do not have that same capacity. It refers to humanity's appointment to have dominion over all the earth and be God's representatives. Only humans are God's representatives on the earth. That is what the image of God is. And throughout the whole Bible, the scriptures are very clear. Humanity is created in God's image, and all of humanity 
is created by the one true God. We could show you Genesis 9, where after the flood, God commanded Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by, man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We should not murder because every human is valuably created in God's image. We could point to Malachi 2, a passage, a passage we looked at two weeks ago. We point to Malachi 2, where Malachi lamenting the fact that their people were faithful, faithless, faithless to God and to one another. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? We could point to Acts 17, where Paul, preaching to the Athenians, preaching the gospel to them, says, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and then goes on to talk about how they should seek God. The scriptures are abundantly clear. God created every human and made them in his image. But scripture goes on to further emphasize that humans are valued and precious in God's sight. We could look at Psalm 8. The Psalms are filled with passages like this. We could look at Psalm 8 where he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. The psalmist reflects, God, our awesome God, values us. We could look at Psalm 139, a passage that I hope you are familiar with, where God says, sorry, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The psalms are clear. God has made us amazingly beautiful, every single human. The biblical witness also shows that at the end of history, in the new heavens and the new earth, after Jesus comes back, heaven's going to be filled with a rich diversity of humanity, praising God before the throne of our Savior, Lord Jesus. Look at Revelation 7 with me, where he writes, John writing about his vision, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The picture of the new heavens and the earth is one of a great multitude, a diverse multitude before God's throne, worshiping the Lord. Note that it says every nation, all tribes and peoples, all languages. These distinctions are not going to be gone when we're in heaven before King Jesus. All humankind has been created in the image of God. And because everyone is made in the image of God, nothing makes someone less, worth, less worthy of value, honor, and dignity, education, age, abil mental ability, gender, physical ability, language, ethnicity, and race. Nothing makes somebody less valuable or not created in God's image. Simply by being created in God's image, every human is of infinite worth to the creator. You know, it's wonderful to watch little children as they begin to start drawing. I have three kids, and I have loved over the years to watch them as they begin to learn how to draw. Uh, they start off with just this kind of amoeba-like looking thing that is supposed to be a person, and it has maybe a couple sticks that are hands and feet. Um, and then it develops, and they get better. And my little girl, Noelle, who's four, loves to draw. 
She's always like, Daddy, draw me a princess, or Daddy, draw me a, a boy. And so I'll draw it, and then she'll color it. And she loves to color people that all look so different. She loves to color a woman who looks Asian like her mom. She loves to color a, a guy who looks like Daddy, who's supposed to be white, but he often ends up more pink and red, because that's really what color I am. This is white. This is not white. She just loves coloring people who look different, and she sees pictures of people who look so different than her, and she just says, they're so beautiful, Daddy. I love that pure, innocent view of other people that we've lost too often because of the sin that's in our hearts. Some people propose that we need to be colorblind, that we shouldn't see color or race. I have a professor in seminary, Pastor Thurman Williams. He is an African-American pastor who actually is from Maryland, and he pre uh, taught me preaching. And he told me a story. He said, Nathan, one time I was a guest preacher at a church, and I preached, and I, afterwards everybody came up, and they were encouraging me with how much that sermon meant to them. And somebody came up, and they said, Pastor Williams, thank you so much. That was such a great sermon. You're so passionate and as you were preaching, I just completely forgot that you were black. And he said, thank you. Thank you for your encouragement. But ma'am, please don't forget that I'm black. God loves that I'm black. He made me that way. It's not enough for us to ignore the differences. It's not enough for us to be colorblind. We need to delight in them. God delights that I'm white. God delights that my wife is Asian. He delights in that diversity that he has made. John Perkins, in his great book, One Blood, says this, we know from looking at God's creation that he delights in diversity, even as that diversity is rooted in common traits. Did you know, for example, that there are more than 31,000 species of fish, he writes. They make an, up an endless varieties of colors, shapes, and behaviors, yet they are all fish. There's a reason why God did it this way. I believe he loves to showcase unity amid diversity. So we see in this first point that God has beautifully created humanity in the image of God, but it's not uniform. It's not just cookie cutter. It's beautifully diverse. So where do we go? We need to delight in that diverse imagery. Both personally, as we look at ourselves, don't look at yourself and think, why am I like that? Don't look at others and think, why are they like that? No, we need to look at the beautiful image of God and say, thank you, Lord, that you created me that way. Thank you, Lord, that you created that person that way. So we need to delight in it. We need to promote it. We need to cultivate this perspective in ourselves, our families, our church, our society. As individuals and as a church, we need to promote the beauty of the diverse image of God. We can do this in numerous ways. I would encourage you, if you're a parent or a grandparent, talk to your children about this. Talk to them about how God's image is beautiful. Read them books where the characters don't look like them. Buy them toys, dolls, where they have different skin color than their own and say that it's beautiful and good. The image of God should be our moral compass that drives us into social issues. If everybody is created in the image of God, then everybody has value and worth. And the image of God should put to rest in our minds any notion of superiority. There's no superior race, there's no superior language, there's no superior country. 
God created all humans in the image of God, the one human race. Some people might say then, well then why do we need to talk about races and racism if we're all one in the image of God? Pastor Erwin Entz would respond, and it's a great response, discarding the word race would make it easier to ignore the devastating and deadly impact of racism. Further, we would fool ourselves into thinking that this is just a problem of the past. No, race is a biological fiction, but it's a sociological fact, he says. So we turn to our next point, the fact that humanity, though created in the beautiful image of God and having that in common, is sinfully divided. We're sinfully divided despite the image. We could look at Genesis 3 and see that after Adam and Eve were created, they lived in the garden, but they disobeyed God. They ate of the tree that they were not to eat, and the result was a curse on them, a curse that broke relationship between God and them and between each other. And then we could go to Genesis 4 and see how Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, their two sons, and sin divided even these two brothers. They offered sacrificial worship to the Lord, and God was pleased with Cain's worship, or Abel's worship, but displeased with Cain. And Cain was jealous, and hatred filled his heart, and he murdered his brother. And if we were to look at Genesis 4-9, if you can find that, sorry, Laura, if you could find Genesis 4-9, we would see what the Lord said to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain was filled with hate, so he murdered his brother. And when the Lord confronts him on that, what does he say? He arrogantly says, am I my brother's keeper? You can just imagine that the resounding answer would have been, yes, you are. That is what God created us to be, our brothers and our sisters' keepers. That's what Adam and Eve were before the fall. Other biblical passages root our sin towards others in God as the creator and the image of God. We could look at Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 17, which we will, if we, we could look at there and we could see that this is characteristic of so many passages. Proverbs 14, 31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. And then if we looked at Proverbs 17, it'll say, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. These passages root these sins in the image of God, the one who created the human that is being oppressed and mocked. To press or mock someone created in the image of God is to dishonor and sin against the one who created them. Too often in American history, and even today, oppression of another occurs because of their race. Too often in America, even today, mockery of another occurs because of their race. These aren't issues that are gone, that we've left behind. We could jump forward to the New Testament where James, the author James, who has so many similarities with the book of Proverbs, writes this in James 3, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. These biblical passages show us that sin against another created in the image of God 
is a sin against God, dishonoring to him. Oppression, mockery, cursing. These are just three examples of how we are sinfully divided. In our day and age, race is one of those issues that has, we have been sinfully divided over. As we oppress someone based on their race, as we mock someone because of their skin color or their ethnicity, as we curse someone in our heart or in our words because of what they look like. Tim Keller has helpfully pointed out that the Bible has both individual and systemic dimensions of sin and justice. We could think of systemic as corporate, affecting the body as a whole. For Christians, it should not surprise us that sin has a corporate element to it. If we read our Bibles well, we will see that. If we were to look at Ezra and Nehemiah, we would see that the people had sinned in marrying foreigners and following those foreign wives and husbands into idolatry. And then we would see that Ezra and Nehemiah had prayed a corporate confession of sin before the whole congregation of the people. But neither Ezra or Nehemiah had sinned. They had not individually married a foreign wife and followed her into idolatry. In fact, the number of the people who had done that was actually quite small. But what does Ezra and Nehemiah pray? They say, we, our sins, they fasted, they prayed, they tore their clothes and put on ashes because of the sin of their people, the corporate sin. So when we talk about systemic racism, we should not immediately put up barriers and not be willing to listen because I individually have not done anything. We as a people, as a nation, have an issue. Systemic racism is often wrongly interpreted as an accusation that everyone in the system is racist. That's not what it means. It actually means almost the opposite. It means that we have systems and institutions that produce racially disparate outcomes, regardless of the intentions of the people in the system. When it comes to this, I could give you so many examples and we could be here for hours, but you would not enjoy that, and I wouldn't either probably. So I'm just gonna talk about two examples. First, school funding. American schools were desegregated over 60 years ago but over 50% of American children still attend schools that are predominantly white or predominantly non-white. And those schools are disproportionately funded. An education firm, EdBuild, did a study and they noted that predominantly white schools, districts, receive $23 billion more a year than predominantly non-white school districts. And they broke it down per a student And they said that for every student enrolled, the average non-white school district receives almost $2,300 less than a white school district. That's not acceptable in the land of the equal. Our school funding system is mostly reliant on geography, and we've set it up so that it's based on local property taxes. And there's a whole history that goes into how that has been oppressive towards communities of minorities. The poverty rate in African-American communities is twice that of the American population as a whole. And so therefore the system of funding our schools disproportionately impacts African-American communities and children. A second example could be the death penalty. Now prosecutors do not seek the death penalty for black criminals more than white criminals. But where 
this systemic issue comes in is where there's an unavoidable racial bias when it comes to sentencing based on the race of the victim. You see, killers of black people rarely get the death penalty, and white killers of black people get the death penalty even less. But people who have killed white people overwhelmingly get the death penalty. You can go and look at the Washington Post where they did an expose on the criminal justice system, and you can see that overwhelmingly, people who killed a white person are more likely to get the death penalty. In some places, 10, 15 times. In one place, 30 times more likely to get the death penalty. What are we saying? That a person who's white is more valuable than a person who is a different skin color? That's what those statistics would indicate. These are just two examples that should show us that there is issues in our system that we need to respond to, that we need to grieve and lament So what do we do? We need to recognize the ways that we are sinfully divided. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Don't take it from me. Go and investigate and explore on your own. Don't take it from your favorite media outlet. Go and explore on your own. Listen to those who have experienced this reality firsthand. And then we need to respond and lament. We need to grieve what's going on. And then we need to confess and repent of it. But that shouldn't be where it ends. We need to move into action. That's where we come to our final point, that we can be reunited in the image of Christ. Sin has horrifically twisted and broken us so that we are sinfully divided despite our common unity in the image of God. But our good, good Father has not left us in that division and hate. He loves us too much for that, so he's remade us one in the image of Christ. We could look at Ephesians 2. Um, I'm going to jump around in a little bit, Laura. <laughs> we could look at Ephesians 2, where Jews and Gentiles were divided, separated by artificial, human-constructed distinctions. They were two separate races, despite having lived around each other for thousands of years. But they were both gathered together as one church at Ephesus. And if we picked up in verse 14, Paul writes, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one as broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We could look at Galatians 3, where Paul, reflecting on the salvation that is available to all, notes that there are no more distinctions No more artificial distinctions. He writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The New Testament is clear. We all are on an equal ground at the foot of the cross with nothing in our hands, completely reliant on God's grace. And if we come united to our Savior, then those things that divide us are no longer important. Leith Anderson, uh, the national evangelical um, president, says, at the center of the gospel is God's heart to reconcile people to himself and to reconcile people to each other. Racial reconciliation demonstrates the power of the gospel and reflects Christ's work on the cross that brought us near to God. What happens when we are reconciled across those sinfully divided racial lines? We turn to one another in love 
and, mu- and become mutually responsible. We do the exact thing that Cain did not do. We become our brothers and sisters' keepers. We, could look at, we should look at 1 John 3, where we're going to have to just skim over it, but 1 John 3, where he writes to his church, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And jumping down to the last verse, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John reminds his readers that they are one in Christ and that they are called in Christ to love one another. Love, as Bill said earlier, is an action. These passages should show us the solution to racism. Mutual responsibility, mutual love, being reunited in Christ. But the reality is that we are still radically divided along racial lines, even as Christians. Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. recognized as far back as the 1950s that the 11 a.m. Sunday morning hour is the most segregated time in America. And that is still true today, even 70 years later. A Pew Research study showed that only 20% of American churchgoers attend ethnically diverse churches. And an ethnically diverse church is explained as one that is 80, sorry, is explained as one where no ethnic group makes up more than 80% of the congregation. That's honestly not that high of a bar. In 1970, John Perkins, an African-American pastor, was nearly beaten to death by white men. Perkins and those white men were both Christians. And the Christianity that they shared did nothing to challenge that wall of racism and hate that divided them. And after his experience, he had every reason to say, I'm done with white people. I want nothing more to do with them. And he could have. But as he was sitting in his hospital bed recovering, God gave him a vision of an interracial community in the heart of Mississippi, worshiping God. And over the next four decades, that vision became a reality, defying the refrain that Sunday is America's most segregated hour. His church maintained a vibrant interracial life across economic boundaries. This wasn't the work of a day. wasn't the work of a year. It was the work of decades. It was hard work. He would tell you that himself. It was the Uh, It was not a sprint, it was a marathon. And that's what it's gonna take if we as the church really desire to heal these racial divides, if we really desire to see the reality that Paul talks about in the New Testament. This is one area where the church should be leading the way for our society. People should come in these doors and see our community and be blown away that the divisions that exist out there no longer exist in here. How do we get there? As I said, it's a marathon. We need to pray. We need to pray for racial division to be put aside, for white, black, Asian, Hispanic, indigenous Christians to be united. We need to seek justice. Earlier we saw how sin and injustice has a corporate element. Justice needs to have a corporate element to it as well. When minority communities over there, when their schools are underfunded, that's not an issue that doesn't impact me. My kid's school has plenty of funding. That's, that school doesn't impact me. I don't need to worry about it. No, it impacts me even though I don't have kids who go to that school. It impacts me even if I don't have kids. 
when black people are consistently sentenced much, much harsher for the same crime or not given as much grace in routine traffic stops, that's an issue that even though it doesn't impact me personally, I should be concerned about. I need to speak out about. So we pray, we seek justice, we need to learn from one another. Because every human is created in the image of God, we can learn from one another. No one race has a monopoly on the truth or a superior insight into biblical revelation. Everyone is created in the image of God. Everyone has the same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. And in fact, we might benefit enormously from learning from somebody from a different race or a different ethnic background. A final way is that we need to develop friendship. Friendships are key. If you go and read John Perkins' book, One Blood, which he recently put out, that details that 40-year history, you will see how many friendships across the racial divide he developed and how he still calls some of those people once a week. It's been so key in developing that racial healing and reconciliation. But the general social survey, a survey done by psychologists every couple years in America, shows that in the most recent survey, shows that only 15% of Americans have close friendships with a person of another race. 15%. That means 85% of people have no close friendships with somebody of a different race. How can we possibly heal these divides if we can't even sit down and enjoy a beer together or enjoy a football game or a baseball game? So we need to develop friendships In summary, God created humans with the beautiful image of God. Therefore, every human is worthy of dignity, honor, and value. God's plan from the beginning was for humanity to spread out and become a huge, diverse, beautiful tapestry over his good creation. But sin entered the world and twisted it so that we still spread out, we still became diverse, but now sin has divided us. But we're not without hope. God and Jesus Christ has saved us from that sin. He has reconciled us so that we can be reunited in the image of Christ. It is possible. We need to strive for it. In the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can turn to our brothers and sisters that are different than us. Turn to them in love, care, friendship, and mutual responsibility. There's so much more that could be said that we could talk about. This is just the beginning of the conversation And I encourage anybody to come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Harrison, talk to any of the staff about this. I'm going to invite the praise team to come on back up. We're going to do something a little different. Um, uh, Today we're going to say our corporate confession today, and then you'll hear the assurance of pardon before we sing our final song. So as the praise team comes on up, why doesn't everybody stand up? If you attended with us before COVID, you know that it's often our practice to corporately together confess our sins before the Lord. I'm not going to force you to confess any sin that you don't hold to. That's why it's not as specific as it could be if it was my own personal sins, if it was your own personal sins. It'll be printed on the screen behind you. Let's confess together. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have worshiped you, our creator, with mouths that have cursed those created in your likeness. 
sorry, let's do that again. We have worshiped you, our creator, with mouths that have cursed those created in, in your likeness. Deepen with us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. There's always forgiveness with you. Restore us. Take a moment to silently reflect in your hearts. Hear now this assurance of pardon. The Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He has declared that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ.